I got out of bed this morning because I wanted something. I wanted to get some quiet hours in before my two-headed chaos monster woke up. That's what I call Arlo and Hollis, my boys, my two-headed chaos monster. God bless them. I wanted to be with you, to reset my heart and my mind on the reality of Jesus. I wanted to talk about this new sermon series on rest, this rising practice of Jesus that is growing more and more in my life. As weird as it sounds, this is actually my job. Sunday is my Monday, so I got up desiring to work, to be with my church family, to contribute to human flourishing in a small way. And I also wanted to, you know, make money so I could pay for dinner, live my life on a Sunday, on a work day, just like everybody else. My point is, I woke up this morning with all kinds of desires. And desires really are great motivators. They're like the engine of our lives. They're, they're what gets us out of bed, propels us into the day. The problem is, is whenever we no longer control our desires, but our desires control us. You see, when you take a closer look at the dynamic of desire, you realize really, really fast, and you don't need a philosophy degree to realize this, you realize that your desires are never fully satisfied. This idea goes all the way back to as far as 1000 BC with Ecclesiastes. It says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not satisfied with hearing. A more recent poet said it this way, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> it's the same thing though. Thomas Aquinas, who many of us know his name, many of us have not read his, his work. He's a 13th century Italian. He was an academic. He was a priest. He was a theologian. He had a big brain, but he asked a simple question. He said, what would it take to satisfy human desire? Meaning, what would I have to do to actually feel satisfied? And he came up with an answer. His answer was simply everything. Everything. You would have to experience everything and everybody, and every person would have to experience you in some capacity. You would have to golf on every golf course, and that's 25 years just looking at Indian River County right there. You would have to go to every continent, every country, visit every city, eat at every restaurant, visit every natural wonder of the world, have every sexual partner, every accomplishment, every accumulation. You would have to experience the universe itself in order to finally feel satisfied. Carl Rayner one of the most important Catholic theologians of the 20th century said it this way, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we come to understand that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. I love that word metaphor of unfinished symphonies. For those of you who are a little more lowbrow like me, it'd be like, a top hit song or 
you know, Taylor Swift is all the talk. Now it'd be like a new Swifty song coming out, dropping today. You're listening, you're beat bopping, and then all of a sudden you get to that climactic moment and then boom, it cuts off. That is what the human condition is like. We're just waiting. Turmoil is how Rainer would describe it. Almost there. Almost at rest. I just need a little bit more of this. A little bit more of that. A little bit more of him, of her, of this, of that, the other. It's unfinished symphonies. Now what all of these bright minds are tapping into is the reality that our desires are infinite. Meaning there is no possible way that you can experience and do everything. There is an infinite amount, meaning at no point is your desire ever satisfied. Now the problem happens whenever you add together infinite desires with our finite reality. Meaning you take up a certain time in a certain space and you can't break free from that, right? I am one body, I am one gender, I have one marriage, I live in one city, have one job, I'm blessed with one family, I live one life, I write one story. The same is true for you as well. You are finite. So what happens is we have infinite desires crammed into our finite reality and it equals restlessness. We live with a chronic state of unsatisfied desires. It's like an itch that no matter how many times you scratch it, it will never go away. So the question becomes whether you are a follower of Jesus or just a really smart guy who thinks he has all the answers, all humans are trying to answer the same question. How do I live with this restlessness? What do I do with all this pent-up, unsatisfied desires? What do I do with it? Because if satisfying all of your desires is not a choice, then at some point you have to take a stand against desires in some capacity. And religions and wisdom, uh, wisdom thoughts have tried to do this for centuries, right? So if you're a Christian philosopher, for example, you would say that you have infinite desires because you were designed to live with a God who is eternal, And he is the only answer to that solution or to that problem. He's the only solution to that problem. If you are a Buddhist, you might say, no, you have to detach yourself from your desires. You have to remove yourself from your desires. If you're a modernist, you would say, no, you can actually buy your desires or you can find them on a dating app. Just go, keep chasing, keep going, keep fighting, keep looking for your desires, just keep spending money in the process, right? Here's what Jesus would say. Jesus says that you have to make God your number one desire. And all of your other desires, however you want to reprioritize them, they have to be placed under God. And listen, I get it. We don't want to push our other desires down because by their definition, we desire them. We want these things, good or bad. But here's what happens. When you put God as your number one desire, all of a sudden, being married, getting that job, living in that location, in that apartment, no longer determines the fulfillment you have in your life. 
One of the most famous lines about the idea of fulfillment comes from a fourth century African, actually. Many of you know him. He goes by the name Augustine of Hippo. And he has a saying, I'm about about to put it up on the screen, but the context is key. He wrote these words after the fall of the Roman Empire, a civilization that was all about fulfillment, about living a life to the fullest and getting the most you can out of this life because there's nothing else. And once that civilization was an ash and crumbled completely, Augustine wrote these words, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. A more recent philosopher by the name of Dallas Willard wrote it this way, desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run to or on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all of our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite, it remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. You know, the default setting of the human condition post-Eden is not atheism. You have to work to be an atheist, right? You, there's something inside of you that desires higher meaning. So to be an atheist, you actually have to go against your natural, your natural desires, right? No, the natural desire of the human condition is actually idolatry. It's to worship and desire something other than your creator, other than God. And you can just fill in whatever it is for you. Maybe it's your career, your marriage, or being married. Maybe it's your family or the outcome of your children. Maybe it's getting that new toy or owning a house in that neighborhood. Maybe it's travel, sex, romance, beauty, a stamp on a passport, a PhD, accolades, rising up in your business. You pick your choice of desire, whatever it is, whatever it is, ultimately, and this is so cliche, but it's so true, ultimately nothing in this life will ever satisfy your desire outside of God because your desires are infinite. They're infinite. And only God, the eternal God, has a solution to that problem. So what happens is we end up in this chronic state of restlessness at best, at worst, frustration, anger, angst, disappointment in where our life is at, disillusionment about where we could be. And this ultimately leads to a life of hurry, of busyness overload, of materialism and attaining and getting more and more, which just leads us to more and more restlessness. Now, to make this problem even worse, (laughs) this has been exacerbated by our cultural moment of digital marketing. You know, we live every moment in our life in in an economy that is built around accumulation and achievement. 
According to a, a Forbes article that I was reading earlier this week, they say we see up to 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements every single day. And every single one of those is designed to stoke the fire in our belly, to buy this, do that, go here, eat this, drink that, go there, be this, own that, go here. And we're going to talk about this more next week when we talk about social media. But social media just then hypes us up to a whole different level, right? Because now we are under this barrage of images from advertisements, from famous and the influential, from our family and our friends that all, let's just say they all have good intentions. Every single one of them, all 10,000 advertisements have absolutely good intentions for you. What does it do inside of you though? But plant seeds of jealousy and envy and hatred as you watch people living lives that you think you want for yourself. Advertising is literally an attempt to monetize your restlessness. There was a documentary series on BBC a few years ago, and it was talking about the rise of, of the digital advertising in our country. And they were following the story of power brokers, Washington, D.C., New York City, that were buying up these factories that were left vacant. Thousands of factories, tens of thousands of workers that were jobless, that were empty after the world wars, right? They were no longer in production, producing for the war. They're left empty. And so these power brokers were buying them up to repurpose our economy from a needs economy to a wants economy. Paul Mauser of Lehman Brothers famously said this in 1927. I want you to pay attention to the language here. He says this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old one has been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desire must overshadow his needs. Now, this right here is the beginning of what we now call planned obsolescence. Layman terms is why it's why you want a new iPhone every September, even though yours is perfectly fine and works just fine. Our economy is literally built on people spending money they don't have on things they don't actually need. They say we spend up to two times, some even say up to 10 times more on goods and services now than we did in 1945. And that is an adjustment after inflation. What that means is we are buying 10 times more cars, 10 times more water bottles, more clothes, more, more square footage, more vacations. Here's my point. There is a multi-billion dollar marketing industry with direct access to your heart in a tiny computer sitting in your front right pocket. And it is designed 
on purpose to fan and to flame your desires, to make money off of your restlessness. We live in what the Korean-German philosopher Byung Chul Han calls an achievement society, meaning all our life is about what we can achieve in it, especially if you live in a city, especially if you're educated, especially if you're of upward mobility. Our natural human restlessness, when it collides with the digital age and a culture of accomplishment and achievement, results in an epidemic of emotional health and spiritual death. You know, psychologists are actually have a new diagnosis for people called hurry sickness. I'm not making this up. This is absolutely true. Hurry sickness is a behavioral pattern that basically identifies people who live in a continual rushing and anxiousness. This phrase was actually coined by Meyer Friedman, a 1950s um, cardiologist who was one of the first people to connect dot, uh, dots between chronic stress and heart disease. Here's how he defines hurry sickness. He says, it is a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more things or participate in more events with less and less time. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, which not only gave us light, but also moved our work into the houses and into longer hours. By the 1960s, almost every American home was equipped with air conditioning and heating, with laundry machines and dishwashers, technology that eliminated these menial tasks that used to take up our time. In 1967, a committee came together to determine what life would look like in 1985 because of all of these technological advances that we had. You want to know what they came up with? They said by 1985, you're going to love this, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year because of all the leisure time we have with technology. But you know the problem just as well as I do. We spend far less more time on leisure, far more time on work than we ever have. Which tells us this isn't a time problem. This is a heart problem. We, with all of this technology, we have been gifted with a hollow culture. With an inability to simply sit still. We drown ourselves in 24-7 living, and we are perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, and spiritually malnourished people in human history. I know I'm being very encouraging to you this morning, but I have the gospel for you this morning as well. I have good news about what we do when it comes to this human condition of restlessness. But before we get to it, I need to confess something to you. I am likely the least qualified person in this room to talk to you about rest this morning. We were sitting in a living room, our living room, a couple of weeks with a few of our friends. 
And they were asking about our upcoming sermon series, about what it is. This was in January, so I brought up rest. I said, oh, we're going to be talking about rest. We're going to be talking about the Sabbath and the importance of these healthy rhythms in our life. And without missing a beat, my friend said, hmm, that's interesting, Peyton, because you are the least restful person that I know. And she didn't mean it in a hateful way. She wasn't being malicious. She was just making an observation about what is true. A couple of days later, I woke up at 2 a.m. in the morning with what I can only describe as a panic attack. Never in my life have I experienced anything like it before. I woke up sweating, shaking, overwhelming feelings, of loneliness, of fear. And it all stemmed from this stupid feeling of being too busy. And even after studying this subject and washing myself over with the words of Jesus as I prepared for the sermon series, this past Wednesday, I worked 11 hours straight And I'm not bragging to you, I'm repenting to you. That was 11 hours that I spent working, not with my family, not with my boys, not with my community, working. So I need this good news from Jesus just as much as anybody else does. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, he promises us not just rest for our bodies. You can get that in a pill or a prescription or a really good mattress. He promises us rest for his soul, for our soul. Here are the actual words. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, or you work too much and you are exhausted, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I like Eugene Peterson has a paraphrase of these words of Jesus. He says it this way. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. However you want to translate Jesus' invitation, the invitation is pretty clear of the life we've been called to live. One that is grounded and rested in the kingdom of God. I've been memorizing Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verse 5, that says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I abide in him, it is that person who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So how do we bear fruit in Jesus' mind? 
In Jesus' kingdom, how do we bear fruit? It's this word, we abide in him. In Greek, the word abide is to put your rest fully into something, to put your weight into it. So if that thing wasn't there, you would completely collapse. But you don't ever have to worry about Jesus not being there. He says, abide in me, and what will happen is that you will then and only then will you start to bear fruit. John's gospel, fruit, looks like love, joy, peace. The New Testament then expounds on those gifts, those fruits, even more. If love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. This, this is the soil that Jesus says you need to grow your life out of, not by working for more, not by your ambition, not by fighting and clawing your way to the top, not by working your tail off, not even by trying harder to love or to be patient or to be full of joy, just learning to rest in the Father's patient presence. And Jesus says, it is then that you will bear the fruits of love and joy and peace. You know, the opposite is true too. That if you cut yourself off from God through busyness, through packed calendars, through anxious heart, through racing minds, that you will still bear fruit. It will just not be the fruit that you want. It will be the fruits of burnout, of compromise, of defeat, of anger, of sadness. Jesus is not glorified by unhappy, exhausted people. Are you unhappy? Have you ever found yourself saying, I'm just exhausted? Have you ever met somebody who was just like over the top stressed out? Or maybe they were so tired, they were like going in and out of concentration. Have you ever walked away from that saying, man, I want, I want what that guy has. He's got something figured out. I need to, I need to pay attention to him. Nah, me neither. I want you to imagine your life like the power bar of your phone. That's pretty easy to do, right? So imagine this is your soul, right? And all the way filled to the top is what Jesus would call life to the full. You are brimming over the top with love and joy and generosity and care, right? You, you just are you're completely rested in your body, in your mind. Your spirit is on fire. You're in tune with God, the life Jesus wants for you. Now, zero is obviously the opposite. And zero has all kinds of effects. It could be a spiraling depression. It could be as extreme as suicide or death. It could be as simple as vegging out on the couch with no purpose for weeks and weeks at a time with no direction in your life. It could look like 2 a.m. in the morning waking up with a panic attack, sweating and feelings of loneliness. So here's what we do is we wait until our life, our soul, is down to about 10 to 20% filled. And if you have a phone, which I imagine everybody does, when your phone is at that point, what are you thinking? Time to recharge. I got to find a charger. I'm not going to make it through the day. I'm going to put it on power mode. What does that even do? I don't know. Does anybody have a charger? Where are the outlets? Like you're thinking, how can I recharge? I just need to get it to a level that's solvent that's manageable. 
And you see, we mistake rest with all kinds of things. We think rest is distraction. We think rest is entertainment. We think rest is something I can do real quick to get myself back up to a manageable level. I just need enough energy to get up at 8 a.m. in the morning and go to work. Just need enough. Maybe if I'm lucky, I'll be able to go out with my friends for dinner that night. Just need to make it through the day. That's all I need. But here's what I want to show you. Here's what God is teaching me right now. It's what we miss between the management level and life to the full. I think Jesus is showing us that we actually miss out on the best stuff that Jesus has to offer us right there. It's in that 90% margin that we find true love, real joy, absolute peace, gratitude that we can't explain, generosity that is beyond us. It's when our attention is sharpest, when we are contemplative in our wisdom, when our character and our integrity is fully intact. You see, without rest, and I mean real rest, not waiting until you're down at 20% and like, okay, got to scramble and make it through the day, but real rest. We simply cannot be the people that Jesus has in mind. And so, being a follower of Jesus means we pay attention to our rest. We pay attention to our margins. And I want to tell you why this is so important. What is the central command of Jesus? If you boil all of Scripture down, what's the central command of Jesus in one word? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what I found to be true about me. And maybe this is just me, right? But 80% of loving well for me is just being emotionally healthy and well-rested, right? So I told you I have a two-headed chaos monster that lives in my house with me, okay? And on any other day of the week before this, before I started trying to implement more rest in my life, I would and I still do, I get up at 5 a.m. in the morning because that's my moment to rest. And I got a, an hour, maybe two, to fully tune myself in with God. I'm tired, I'm worn out from the week, but oh man, this is my time. So I could, I could pray, I could fast, I could get naked on the roof, speak in tongues, memorize Leviticus and all of Scripture. I could do all the Jesus stuff. And then I could walk into my door and see my boys taking dirt from the potted plants and putting them into the dishwasher. <laughs> and I would go ballistic. All of that time I spent with Jesus, and in one moment, I'm Satan, right? I'm locked in. What did it for me? Dirt. Dirt is what broke me. If you catch me, though, rested, after a long nap, a weekend where we had an extra day, maybe a trip where I got to be quiet and to myself some, honestly, loving is pretty easy. When I'm not rested, though, it doesn't matter how much I pray, how many times I read through the Bible, how many times I go to Bible studies or church, or listen to the Bible Project podcast. It just doesn't matter if I'm not rested. Emotional health matters not just because you'll be happier, but because you'll be more loving, more patient, 
more joyful, more at peace with God, and that is what this series is all about. We are going to explore the counterintuitive idea that the best way that you can progress is to stop and rest. Next week, I'm going to ask you the question, can you even put your phone down? Where Jesus is going to invite us out of a life of hurry and into a life of solitude. After that, Tracy is going to pick it up and talk about Sabbath. What does that word mean? Why was it instituted? What does Sabbath look like in our modern world and why do we need it? But as we prepare for next week, I want to invite you into a practice of rest that the leadership is involved in. We've sent you a couple of emails, we've communicated it multiple times, but we don't want anybody to be lost in this. For the month of February, so for the next four weeks, we are going to eliminate social media from our Sunday routine, from our Sunday rhythms. Now, what you are going to learn in this series is Sabbath is all about jolting you out of your routine. It's, it's designed to wake you up, to make you feel uncomfortable, to realign yourself to something else. So from Saturday, when you fall asleep, to Monday when you wake up, you would be committing, we are inviting you, we are challenging you, don't be involved on social media. 24 hours, 24 hours a week to choose something else. 24 hours a week to choose rest. So here's what I want to do. If you are willing, if you're willing to join us in this challenge, to challenge yourself, I want you to get your phone out right now. Go on, get it out right now. I'm not going to ask you to delete your apps or anything like that. I'm not going to do that. I want you to get your, uh, just get, I know you have it. Just pull out your pocket. If you don't have your phone today, you're already winning. You're already on the leaderboard. Good job. Yeah, some people are like, woo, I did it. I want, if you got your phone, if you don't have your phone, you can just put your hand up and say, I'm committing. Put your phone up right here. Everybody, let's see it. You're showing your church family, I'll, I'll do this. I'm willing to do this. A little social pressure goes a long way. Yeah, put it up. And I just want you to keep your phone up. I just want you to say this. This does not own me. He owns me. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for our family that wants to be better, that wants to be more like you. Father, I pray for this month, for this series. I pray for Monday morning, Monday afternoon, when the coffee wears off, when our schedule is packed. Father, I pray that we will find a moment in our heart and our mind to stop. to reevaluate, to realign our hearts to you. Father, today we just committed, no social media, and this is a small step to a life of rest, but you don't reach your destination without that first step. So Father, help us in this first step. Some people, some people in this room are like, oh, this is easy, I got this. Challenge them to something deeper. Others in this room are thinking, I don't know how I'm going to survive today. Father, give them the strength. And Father, whenever we have that habit, that bad habit to click over, I've done it three times already today, to click over to social media like my brain is turned off, realign our heart. Help us choose something else. Father, I'm grateful that today, instead of clicking over, I thought, 
I'm going to go to the Bible app. I'm going to go read your word. And you know what you brought me to this morning? You brought me to your words in Matthew chapter 5 that said, you are a light put on top of a hillside to shine out to everybody else. So Father, maybe that's the word that you need these people to hear, that we need to hear together, that we are called to be different, to be the light in the dark world, and that starts with how we choose to live our life. And Father, maybe instead of it, of our mind going to what we can do, put on our heart to stop and rest, to choose something different in our hearts and our minds today. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for a family that surrounds each other, that really cares and counts on each other. Father, I just ask that you will be with us this week, that we will be something different, that we will find rest in you. We give this prayer, we give it all, praise everything to you. All of our hurts, all of our pains, we lay it at your feet. Father, give us your rest. In Jesus' holy name, we offer this prayer. Amen.